0: So, if you want to turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 4, and uh, we will be l- l- just looking at a couple of verses today, verse 8 and verse 9. But let me start with a, a recap. Um, Last week we learned that our lives are like a bath. Circumstances flow into our lives. And we cannot help these circumstances flowing into our lives. Just like uh, once that tap's been turned on, you cannot help water flowing into the bath. And, And so God has created us this way. But he's also created us to give our anxieties, our worries, our concerns over to him. And this is like the drain hole or the plug hole... In the bath, and so just as water flows in from the taps and out through the drain hole or the plug hole, so this is how God has created us that as circumstances flow into our lives that we, we hand them straight over to Him and we trust Him for the outcome. But sin has entered into the human race, and as a result, we've kind of learnt to mistrust God, and so we find it easier to hold on to our concerns, our anxieties, our worries then hand them over to him. And that's kind of like the clump of hair that blocks up the drain hole. And I know that some of you have reflected back to me that that was the most disgusting um, (laughs) example you've heard, which is fine, as long as you remember it. And so our sanctification, our growth in Christ, is like learning how to unplug that drain hole, that plug hole, one hair at a time. And so Paul explains this as... As replacing anxiety with prayer. That one by one we're handing over our anxieties and concerns over to God. It becomes a spiritual habit. And as we keep on with this habit. Handing things over to God in prayer rather than holding on to them. That drain hole, that plug hole becomes unclogged. And intimate communication with God can be re-established as he wishes it. As he receives the concerns that we give to him in prayer. And the good news is that after the drain hole is unclogged and we're habitually giving our concerns over to God, then we kind of move into maintenance mode. Now I'm not talking about going into autopilot, but, um, and it's not that work is no longer needed because it is. But the more we do it, the easier it becomes. It's, it's like working out, you know, the more that you train, the easier it becomes. Or learning to read, that the more y- you do it, the more enjoyable and easier reading becomes. Or like cleaning your farm equipment, is that the more regularly you're cleaning the mud off, the less work is needed each time. If you just leave it on there and let it cake, then over the months and years and seasons, it becomes a huge job. And so we reach this place where, where God's peace acts like a hair trap over that drain hole. It stands guard. It guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And this is the life that God has for us in Jesus Christ. And so for those of us who've submitted already to Christ's rule, we understand that through the cross, Jesus cleared the way for us to come to God and through the Holy Spirit living inside us, we are reminded that we are declared righteous in God's eyes. And so that line of communication is open. The, the water is flowing and the, and the hair trap of God's peace guards our hearts and minds from unwanted build-ups and unwanted blockages. And if you're a Christian who's living in communication with God, all that you need to be doing is regularly wiping the hair from the outside of that hair trap. So that's what this week is all about, is how do we keep that hair trap clear. Last week was about doing the hard work of unclogging the drain hole in the first place. But this week is about maintenance. And we're going to be focusing on two facets of our lives, What we think about and what we do, which if you think about it, that's pretty much all of our lives, what we think about and what we do. So let's read today's scripture, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learnt and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So he starts off by saying, Think about these things. Dwell on these things. Fix your mind on these things. Fill your mind with these things. Once again, it's an action. It's, it's a resolution. It's, it's a, a determination. It's a choosing this and choosing not that. In fact, one, one commentator says that, that this phrase, think about these things, means to take into account carefully... or to to calculate so it means that there's focus here it means that your mental faculties are engaged in the same way that you might go into into your shop and choose which socket wrench you are to use in the same way you are to think upon these things when we cross the road we don't just wander into the middle of the road and hope for the best we engage our intellect, our intuition, our senses, our memory. What happened last time? Is the light green? Are the cars stopping? Is it safe to cross? We hear a lot, um, or, or at least I'm hearing a lot now, about this word mindfulness. And it kind of means to be in the moment and to be aware of what's going on around you. to so not just blithely saunter through life but to be intentional what's happening right now to engage your five senses in in being present in this moment that's mindfulness and the reason that there's this movement of mindfulness is because we live in a society that's lulling us to sleep that's kind of hypnotizing us our phone screens have their mesmerizing gaze And so our kids are having to snap us out of it by saying, hey, daddy, dad, dad, dad. And so I think that we kind of have to practice a biblical mindfulness, an intentional dwelling on, an anchor that can root us in the here and now. So... Think about this. If Paul was saying what he said in Philippians 4 verse 8 and 9 to the ancient unplugged world where there was no internet, there was no Twitter, there was no international flight, there was no cloud storage, there was no Instagram, there was no, no, there was no BuzzFeed, there were, there were no internet trolls, there was, there was no someone just liked your post alerts. How much more important is it that we're thinking on these things when life is 10,000 times faster and there are 10,000 other things or more things to compete with the word of God. And, and remember that it's this act on thinking on these things that, that connects us with the peace of God that has been tasked to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So what this means is that the extent to which we're not practicing Bible-based mindfulness is the extent to which we're knocking that hair trap off the drain and allowing these anxieties and worries and concerns to build up again. And I know that I may be picking low-hanging fruit when I say this, but if there's anything that we're willingly handing our time, our concentration, our families and our lives to, it's got to be the smartphone. So my question for you is, in your household... What rules have you got regarding smartphone usage and internet usage? Are you just hoping for the best? Are you, are you maybe working on this naive trust that people innately know how to wisely use smart technology? That somehow we're born with this primal compass that lives inside us that tells us when to switch off our phone and re-engage with the real world? Because the actual fact of the matter and I don't think I'm overstating this, is that we're part of a global experiment right now. That that we're part of something that has never been experienced before. And the outcome of this global experiment of which we are a part will, will really determine how the next generation thinks, engages, reasons, understands, or even deals with reality. Smartphones are with us to stay. And we will never be rid of them. They are going to become more and more part of our lives. And we're going to become more and more dependent on them. And they're not bad. They're not evil. Not at all. In fact, as much as I can on an inanimate object, I love mine. It's very (laughs) useful. But what we do have to realise is that they are a force to be reckoned with. And so, in short, what we need to be is smarter than our smartphones. And the fact that I probably unlock my smartphone more often than I think of God is not lost on me. And the fact that my smartphone gives me private access to a dark world of sinister goings-on, and that any moment I can indulge in any fantasy that I want to at the click of a button, that's not lost on me either. And the fact that someone's Instagram comment is more important to me sometimes than my daughter who's trying to get hold of me and my attention to explain how her day went, that's not lost on me either. So however important it was for the church at Philippi to be thinking on these things, how much more insanely urgent and absolutely critical and pressing is it that we are resolved to think on these things, that we are are determining to dwell on these things, that we're focused on fixing our minds on these things, that we're fixated on filling our minds with these things, because it's a decision, it's a determination, it's a resolution. And so the question I hope you're asking right now is, what things? What things are we supposed to be thinking about What things should be filling our minds? Should we be fixated on? Well, Paul handily lists them in verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise. So how does your life match up with these things? True, honourable, just, Pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Is this what your day is full of on a regular basis? What about me? But if I'm to be totally honest and fair, when I hear this list of virtues, you know what I hear? I hear whatever is good, whatever is nice, whatever is good, whatever is nice, whatever is good, whatever is is nice anything is good if anything is nice think upon these things it kind of turns into this fog of nice sounding words a bit like something that we might expect ned flanders to say it all sounds very little house on the prairie or seventh heaven or heartland but here there is a sharp edge and we miss this sharp edge so we need something to bring out this sharp edge to show us what this sharp edge is to really hear what paul is saying here And I think that we can do that. We can find out what that sharp edge is by looking at the opposite of these lists of virtues. So here goes. Whatever is untrue or maybe dishonest. Whatever is dishonorable. Whatever is unjust. Whatever is impure. Whatever is ugly or repulsive. Whatever is worthy of rebuke. Whatever is maybe terrible. Whatever is shameful. Think about these things. Because this anti-list, this opposite list, sort of um, really paints a picture of a lot of the sickness and the sadness and the tragedy around us. What was that shooter in, in Texas thinking of? What was in his mind? What was filling his mind? What about that woman who leaves her husband to go relive a teenage romance? What's filling her mind What about that man who secretly lost all of of his savings on a gambling app and he still hasn't told his wife? What is he thinking of? What is filling his mind? Because here's the reality. If we're not filling our minds with the true, the honourable, the just, the pure, the lovely and the commendable, the excellent and the praiseworthy, then for sure we're filling it with the other stuff. Because it's very, very rare that there's such thing as a neutral thought most of the time it's either the good stuff or it's the bad stuff. So if we're not fixating on the good stuff, then we're fixating on what is untrue, what is dishonorable, what is unjust, what is impure, ugly, repulsive, worthy of, re- of rebuke, what is terrible and what is shameful. So think about your life when you're at home, on the, on the evenings, on the weekends. Are you fixating on what is true or what is untrue? Are you filling your mind with what is honourable or what is dishonourable? Are you thinking on what is just or what is unjust? Are you pondering what is pure or what is impure? Are you considering what is lovely or what is repulsive? Are you allowing into your mind what is, what is commendable or what is worthy of rebuke? Are you dwelling on what is excellent or what is actually terrible? If we as a congregation could see into your mind right now, would we praise you for your thought life? Or would we turn away in shame and embarrassment and not really know how to talk to you next time we saw you? So I'd like you to maybe take a moment in silence to think about these lists. If you have Philippians 4, look at these words and really think of the opposites and say, Lord, which am I fixated on? Which is, which is filling my life right now? So let's have a moment of silence and just let God speak to us. So, what things are you focusing on? And unfortunately, as humans, we have a default. We have a bent. We have an inclination, which is to spend our precious hours on this earth on things that are more untrue than are true. To spend our time on earth on things which are maybe dishonorable rather than things which are, which are honorable. On things which are impure rather than things which are pure. Because as humans, outside of Jesus Christ, we're broken. We are defective. We are dead, is what, is what Scripture says. Which is why the psalmist prays this prayer in Psalm 119, verse 36. Which says this, Psalm 119, 36 says this. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes away, or turn my eyes from looking at worthless things... And give me life in your ways. So he realizes that, in the same way that we should realize that with no influence from the outside, with zero pressure, zero influence, we automatically go towards that which is dangerous, which is sinful. Which is why the psalmist says, God, you need to incline my heart. You need to grant me the desire to... To seek that which I wouldn't usually seek. You need to lead me into the scriptures instead of to selfish gain because I tend towards selfish gain. It's just who I am. You need to grab my head and you need to turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Because our feet end up where our eyes already are. Or if we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 that says this 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3 he says this i am afraid that as the serpent deceived eve by his cunning that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to christ i am afraid he says that your thoughts will be led away he says, he's saying that an external pressure will, will come and will fool you into leaving your devotion to Jesus Christ. And, and his language, it means that the danger is very real. And it's not just an impersonal external force. It's a genius mastermind who is behind fooling Adam and Eve right at the beginning. That this same cunning and, and persuasiveness is being leveled against us. And Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians, is very concerned. He's afraid. So we need to pray that God turns our eyes. We need to pray that he gives us a deep, deep desire for his word. So if you have no interest in reading the word at the moment, how much are you praying, God, would you incline my heart? Because I don't have it myself. We need to pray against the strategies of Satan and the forces of darkness who are arrayed against us. And it's not always Satan. Sometimes it's our own darkness, our own temptations, our own tendencies to fall into old habits. Because where our eyes are looking, our feet will end up. Which is why it's so important that we hear these words in Philippians Chapter 4, verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent, if there is anything worthy on praise, think about these things. Now this landscape that God has created for us to roam in and to move in and to enjoy and to make our own is absolutely ginormous. We have such incredible freedom. We can wander in the valley of truth. We can shimmy up the tree of honour. We can skip through the meadow of justice. We can admire the wonderful view of loveliness. We can shop in the market of commendableness. We can stay at the Hotel of Excellence and curl up with a good book in front of the fire. We can even go base jumping off the cliff of praiseworthiness. This is the panorama of options that God has created for us in in Christ. But like Adam and Eve, we're inexplicably drawn to that one tree that God has told us to steer clear of. Which is why thinking about these things, as we read in verse 8, is not enough. Yes, that's where it starts. An act of the will. It's a choice. But that's not where it ends. Which is why we have to move on to verse 9. Which says this. What you have learnt and received and heard and seen in me... You need to practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We can't just live in our own headspace and hope that things go okay. We cannot afford to rely on our good intentions. We have to do something about it. You know, know, I remember praying for years that God would free me from sinful lusts and i remember that deep conviction of sin that that coming to him in repentance and that and that promise that lord i'll never do it again how could i ever go back into that hole after feeling this way god i'll never do it again because i never want to feel like this again and yet one month or one week or one day or one hour later There I was, reneging on the promise that I'd made to God and feeling even worse the second time, third time, fourth time, 15th time round. And it's for this very reason that I meet every two weeks with a friend for the purpose of accountability. This is the reason why I have installed on my phone software that records every website which I go to. Because I know that left to my own devices... It will not be long before I'm lured in by the siren call of these lusts, which are calling to me. And I'm wandering down dangerous paths and sinful paths. This is the reason why it's not just about thinking on these things, but it's practicing these things. And I think that that's where many of us fall down and fail. We feel stirred in our hearts during a service and we make a commitment inside. But that's as far as it goes. We live lives of never-ending New Year's resolutions. This time it's going to be different. And then we carry on exactly as we were, still listening to that same music, still watching those shows, still nursing that grudge, still, still giving ourselves full and hindered access into the internet, still spending unchecked time with people who do nothing but drag us down. But Paul says... What you have received and heard and learned and seen in me, practice these things. And so what Paul is saying here is simple. He's saying that there is a clear link between true faith and actually doing something. Which is why James says this. James says in James 2.18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you, show you my faith through my works. Or what about Paul's letter Yeah, to Titus? If you can find that, it's, it's worth looking at because this is one of these verses that if you can memorize, you've got the whole of the gospel in your hand. So Titus chapter three, verse three, says this. And he starts by by showing or painting a picture of where we were pre-Christ. And for some of us here, that's where you are now. This is, this is a description of your life. Verse, Titus 3 verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, Led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What an ugly picture. But then Paul moves on to the change and the difference that Jesus makes in our lives. Verse 4 But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, of God our Saviour, appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour verse 7 so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In these verses there is a tidal wave of truth. That if you stand in front of it and allow it to wash it over you, you will be knocked on your butt. It's just incredible. So if you're a Christian who has maybe um, lost the sharp edge of what Christ has done for you and won for you and achieved for you. Or if you're not a Christian who wants to know what happens when someone gets saved, then read Titus chapter 3 verse 4. Through seven. This is it. It's it's incredible. But then he goes on in verse eight the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So after this great expose of theological truth. Paul gets serious and emphatic. He says, number one, this saying is trustworthy. And number two, I want you to insist on these things. Why does he say these things? So that those who believe in God may be careful or intentional or deliberate or purposeful to (sighs) devote themselves. Which means to place higher than anything else. Themselves to what? Is it is it God? Is it church? Is it singing hymns? Is it kneeling at the altar? Is it really repenting this time and really getting right with God and finally meaning it? No. He says to good works. Works. Which is kind of like Paul taking out a huge ad in the Ottawa Citizen that spans two whole pages and it says do good works. Why? He even explains why. Verse 8. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And it's not only excellent and and, and profitable for the people who are receiving these good works, it's excellent and profitable for the people who are doing them. So what this is saying, and the point which I'm trying to make, is that your joy in life, sinks or swims on what, first of all, you choose to think, and secondly, what you choose to actually do. That there is a joy-filled life, and there is an anxiety-filled life that God has for you. There is this life of rejoicing in the Lord, in Philippians 4, verse 4. There is this life of rejoicing in... In him, there is this life that shows its reasonableness and gentleness to everyone. Verse 5. There is this, this, this life that Jesus has for you that refuses to let anxieties fester and is turning them into prayer. This is the person who's keeping that drain hole clear of hair because this is the person who's given the right and the permission to the peace of God to set up a perimeter around their heart and mind. This is the person who's regularly keeping that hair trap clear by scooping up and throwing away the small bit, bits of hair and junk that's maybe gathered there over the past hour, day or week. But how does this cleaning take place? By refusing to think on whatever is a lie, whatever is dishonourable, whatever is unjust. Whatever is impure or repulsive or worthy of rebuke or terrible or shameful. And instead choosing to think on whatever is true, whatever is commendable or whatever is honourable. Just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent and worthy of praise. And it's this life that's keeping that hair trap clear. That's actually doing something about it. Which leads us to... A final final conditional promise of verse 9. And the God of peace will be with you. It's a conditional promise. It's not for everyone. It's for people who live out verse 8 and verse 9a. And so the good news is that if you're struggling with your conscience... Here today, if there's a sin in your life that you know is there and that you're wrestling with, if you're feeling this heaviness and this weight of this sin, then this is a sign of God's grace. That God is not done with you yet. That he's still knocking on the door. He's still waiting for you to invite him in so that he can clean house. It's when the knocking stops that we have to be concerned. It's when that sin that used to bother us, No longer bothers us. That we have to be afraid. It's when we cannot hear that knocking as much as we used to. That maybe we need to turn down the noise in our lives. And we need to get along with God in honesty and in vulnerability. And allow him to get us back on track with living lives that are about thinking the right things. And doing the right things. So I know... That for some of us here, things have, things have to change. Maybe you have to, to make a decision that you actually work out to spend more time with the Lord. Maybe you, you need to stop watching that show that you enjoy so much but keeps taking you to a dark and a sinful place. Maybe there are habits that you have to stop. Maybe you have to be courageous and open up to someone and confess your sin in an open way. Maybe you haven't even chosen Christ as your Lord and Saviour yet. And my question to you is, why not? Because your way is clearly not working. But I am concerned that as you walk away, that, that you walk away thinking that this sermon has been about doing the right thing or thinking the right thing. And if so, then I've failed. Because it's not just about right thinking. It's not just about right acting. It's about a right relationship. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 and 9 is about a person. So let me explain it in, in, in this way. If you, try, if you could try to imagine a person who could, who could embody all of the characteristics that we've heard of. Truth and honor. Justice. Purity. Loveliness. Worthy of, of our commendation. Excellent. Excellent worthy of our praise, then who comes to mind? For me, as for Paul, it's Christ Jesus. He is the perfect truth and the perfect honour and perfect justice and so on and so forth. Paul is pointing to Jesus Christ. My younger brother has has lived for years as a sceptic. He has surrounded himself himself for years with reasons not to trust christ and yet there was a cord from god that was drawing him and this past tuesday i had the one wonderful privilege over video chat of watching my younger brother repent of his sins and surrender to christ as his lord and saviour And the thing is, is that he's still a skeptic. He's still asking questions. And I pray that that never stops. I pray that he brings that level of thinking and analysis into his relationship with Christ. He's still the same, but everything has changed. Because now he's no longer asking questions to a dark and lonely universe, to a God that may or may not exist. He's asking questions with the Holy Spirit inside of him, who will guide him into all truth. And the same can be true of you today. My brother is now living a life of faith-seeking understanding. And here's the thing, is that if, my, if God can bring my brother, my skeptical, cynical brother, who would rejected Jesus and rejected faith to faith, then for sure he can do the same for you. Absolutely he can. So when your life is spent thinking about Jesus and practicing what you've learned from him and those who follow him, then you know that the God of peace is with you. Verse 9. And note that it's not only the peace of God... Of verse 7. But it's the God of peace. Of verse 9. Not only is the peace of God. Um, guarding your heart and mind. In Christ Jesus. But the God of peace. Is with you. In the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Emmanuel. Who is, who is God with us. Remember the Lord. Is at hand. So. This week in our Grow Groups we're going to be talking this through working it through wrestling through it as we do every week and we will be asking questions like this what kind of rules should we have in our homes regarding social media usage of the internet why is it so much easier to think on things which are bad than things which are good why are we drawn in that way how is the modern idea, at least it's modern to me, how is the modern idea of mindfulness similar to or maybe different from Paul's command to think upon these things? And according to 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3, how can our thoughts be led astray from a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ? What tactics is the enemy using? And why is it so hard for us to be honest with each other about our sin? And then the final sample question, which you'll hear, hear today, is why does Paul start verse 8 with the peace of God, and why does he end verse 8 with the God of peace? What's the similarity between the God of peace and the peace of God, and maybe what is the difference